right. Anyway, we're in the book of Revelation, and we finished chapter 10 last time. And so we'll pick it up here at uh, chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. All right. Measuring. That can either be a good thing or a bad thing. It is more often than not a bad thing. Let's start back in 2 Kings 21. I'm in verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did, who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. So there's the first instance in Scripture of God measuring something. And it's not good. I'll get you a couple other examples. Lamentations 2.8 The Lord determined to lay in ruins the walls of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Let's go to... Uh, Ezekiel 40. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, on the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. All right. First off, understand what we're talking about here. Ezekiel is writing from Babylon. It's the 25th year of his exile. That means that Nebuchadnezzar, remember Nebuchadnezzar goes to Israel twice, three times really. The third time is when he sands the place off flat. Okay? He destroys the city, destroys the wall, levels the temple. No stone left one upon the other. Everything's flat. So this is the situation with Israel at the time Ezekiel is writing. Verse 2. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. So, bronze, what are we talking with bronze? Judgment. And he has got a measuring reed, which is six long cubits. The reed is, and then the linen cord. Linen doesn't stretch. So, it is used for tape measures. So, the, so the, the raw, the reed, if you will, it's a, it's a, you know, like a yardstick, except that it's uh, six cubits, which is nine feet, and this tape, which is some other length. And he was standing in the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I will show you. 
for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you, declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Now what is he looking at? What are we about to measure? The millennial temple. Because remember, the first temple has been destroyed. It's flat. And he specifically tells us that by telling us when he has this vision. So what he is doing is he is seeing the millennial temple. And then we proceed for several chapters where we do measurements. And and notice that this guy that is doing the measurements is looking like bronze. Now, what I want to do is I want to skip over all the measurements. I'm not going to go through that. And where I want to go is Ezekiel 43 now. And, And this being in bronze is finished all the measurements, not all the measurements, he's got some to go yet. So I'm in now in Ezekiel 43, verse 10. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, that is its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple, the whole territory on top of the mountain. All around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. So there is something about this sequence of measurements that will bring Israel to shame. Now, I don't claim to know what that is. But you've got this angelic being dressed in bronze, indicating judgment. He goes through several chapters of very detailed measurements of the Millennial Temple, and then he says, oh, by the way, show these measurements to Israel and they'll be ashamed. What I'm suggesting to you that in Revelation, we got something similar going on. And so at 11, it was given to me, given a resident... Then it was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, what we don't know at this point is what temple he's measuring. Because when John is alive, the second temple is still standing. Okay? So it is entirely possible that it's the second temple. It is possible that it is the third temple. Not the millennial temple, the third temple. Because remember, part of this whole shooting match is Israel sets up an altar on the temple mount, resumes sacrifice, and all of the temple stuff has started up. So, I have no idea what's being measured here. He's talking about the second temple, although unlikely. First temple, way unlikely. Millennial temple, possible. Third temple, possible. I, I just don't know. But it is a temple of some, of some description. And what I'm suggesting to you, given what's going on in Revelation, is this is not a benign measurement. In other words, it is not one of these measurements where measure the scope of the territory that I'm going to give you. That measurement is also described in Scripture, where God says, you know, measure this, measure that, and and this is all the land that I'm going to give you. 
that benign type of measurement is very unusual in the Bible. The more usual kind of measurement is, all right, measure this out because I'm going to cut it down. Sort of like you measure a tree before you chop it down. That kind of a measurement. All right, so now we introduce the two witnesses. And, and they just sort of pop up. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Who are they? Remember, they haven't shown up before now. So these are the two witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And, and of course, the other, op, the other reference to olive trees and so forth is in Zechariah 4, where you've got a menorah set up and you've got two olive trees behind it. Of course, the menorah runs on olive oil. And the idea of having a menorah connected to an olive tree is eternal light. Okay? A constant supply of oil, if you will. That's what the metaphor is. So these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Lots and lots of speculation on who the two witnesses are. My speculation, which is not worth any more than anybody else's speculation, is Moses and Elijah. The reason for that is because the things that they do are things that Moses and Elijah historically did. So Elijah was able to shut the heavens and cause drought. And of course Moses was able to call down plagues and turn water into blood. That's my only reason for saying those two guys. Uh, I have heard people say Elijah and Enoch. And their reasoning there is that elsewhere in scripture it says there's appointed a man once to die and then the judgment. Well, those are the only two guys in Scripture that didn't physically die. Both of them got sucked up into the overhead. So people say, well, those must be the two witnesses because they never died. They're going to die here, and that's their, their one death, and, and, and you know, maybe you're right. That speculation is just as good as my speculation. But I like my speculation, so I'm sticking to it. All right, back into Revelation. I'm now in 11, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the, street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. I think at that point it's very clear we're talking about Jerusalem. Verse 9. For three and a half days some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Okay, Uh, notice that those who dwell on the earth. Uh, This is, again, our, our friends, the earth dwellers. This, by the way, is Christmas. You know, they make merry and exchange presents. I am sure that, you know, you're going to have webcams and everything else pointed at these two dead bodies. I would, again, make a guess. 
that one of the reasons they don't let them be moved is because they are someplace which is defiling something holy? In other words, if, if the corpses are laying on the Temple Mount somewhere where it defiles something holy, I can see why they would want to leave them there. But I, I think that the, the place where they're laying is significant, and that's one of the reasons that the bodies are not moved is because they want that place defiled and they want it to stay defiled. And the other part of that is that when it comes time for them to be killed, it, you know, sort of, you remember the scene from Star Wars where uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and Darth Vader are fighting with their lightsabers? And, you know, they fight back, you know, fight long enough to be an interesting fight for the television, but then at some point, uh, Obi-Wan stands, just drops his sword and smiles, and Darth Vader cuts him down and, and yeah, and there's nothing there. You, you sort of get the impression here that by the time these guys are able to be killed, it's time for them to be killed and, and there's no victory there. You understand what I'm saying? Because up until this time, it says, uh, it, back in verse 5, if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And so these guys are perfectly capable of protecting themselves until they decide not to. I, that's sort of the way I'm, I'm reading it. But again, that may be too much Hollywood on my part. Also, um, the other thing to understand is Satan's primary weapon is words. And one of the reasons that, for example, the left keeps trying to redefine language and redefine terms is because words have power. And so as they redefine language, redefine terms, what they wind up doing is being able to manipulate people by changing the meanings of things. So the two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. What these guys are doing that is so tormenting is they are speaking the truth. And the thing that Satan cannot abide is somebody standing up and speaking the truth without fear. That's what all of political correctness is. It's to intimidate you into censoring yourself so you will not say what is true. In other words, there's no problem with you lying. Nobody gets upset with you to lie. But if you tell the truth about certain things, they just go ballistic. You get fired from NPR. You get fired from NPR. I mean, you know, I'm very serious. And all that is by way of manipulating the language and getting God's people to speak lies out of fear. And so one of the things that these two witnesses are doing, I think, are standing up and they're just looking them straight in the face and they're telling the truth and they can't be shut up. They can't be silenced. They can't be intimidated. So the reason that then that they had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers again, are those who manipulate language to either manipulate people or to make themselves feel good about the abominations that they do. So what, used, what started off being sodomy morphed into being gay and is now something that you can't talk against. And, and this is all by way of 
enabling the people who practice such things and the people who associate with the people who do such things, allowing them to feel good about themselves when they know at some level that their behavior is wrong, but as long as nobody ever says it and as long as nobody is ever able to speak about it, then they can go whistling along and assume that everything's okay. And when these two witnesses stand up and start speaking the word of God, that is distressing to these people. It's judgmental, is I think the favorite word, or was a year or two ago. I don't know what the favorite word is anymore. But basically, they're, you know, oh, you're being judgmental. You have to shut up. You can't say those things. And these guys can't be silenced, which is why they have to be killed. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and oh, shoot, no. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Well, I guess so. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And I'm just going to keep reading here for a minute, and we'll come back and unpack. 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has come, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. This is the seventh trumpet, which happens, at least in the flow of the narrative here, immediately after the two witnesses get sucked into the overhead. I am going to assert that this is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. The feast where no man knows the day or the hour. And for those of you who haven't been through this a few times, Rosh Hashanah, which is coming up here in about a month, we know within 48 hours when it's going to be, but we don't know the day or the hour. The only time you know for sure when it is is when they spot the sliver of the new moon in Jerusalem. And that can vary by a day either way. So, biblically, no man knows the day or the hour is code speak for Rosh Hashanah, okay? which is also the Feast of Trumpets. And, of course, this is the seventh and last trumpet. So, in the chronology here, we are at Rosh Hashanah, and Yeshua has landed. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I mean, you can't get any clearer than that. It's sort of like when Joshua is standing outside of Jericho, and he meets the angel of the Lord, and he says to him, Are you for us or are you for our foes? And he says, No. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's the same kind of thing. I'm here, I'm taking charge, and no, I'm not for you, I'm not for your foes, I'm me. I am the pre-existent one. I am him who is. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Notice the formula here who is and who was. What's the normal formula? 
who was, who is, and who is to come. Three, right? And my King Jimmy has that Well, mine doesn't. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I like, I like it this way better. Yeah, no kidding, I agree. Yeah, it, it's no longer who is to come, who is. He, he's here. Again, I'm not going to get into the argument between King Jamie and everybody else, but this one reads better to me. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead is to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now, remember this all started when the lamb goes to the throne and gets the scroll. We talked about that a number of number of weeks ago. What I asserted then, and what I still believe, is that it is the custom biblically when you're dealing with a land deed to have two copies. You have a copy that's kept sealed in a jar and put in what we would call the county clerk's office, but put somewhere safe. It is not used every day. You have a second, and that's sealed. You have a second copy which is open, which is used, you know, as you're plowing your field and you're arguing with neighbor Jones over there, you know, which side of the tree is mine? Well, it says right here, this is my tree. And if, if, if you know, it really comes to a shouting match, you can go back to the county courthouse and get the one of record, but typically you don't do that. So what I asserted was that the scroll that the lamb took with its sealed seals was the record copy of the Torah. In other words, we have a copy down here, chiseled in tablets of stone, written on parchments, all that kind of stuff. We have a copy of the Torah. That's our working copy that we use every day, and we open it up and unroll it and read from it and say, you know, no, 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 you're wrong because it says here, and oh, you're right because it says there. I mean, that's what we use the working copy for every day. Living. The record copy is in heaven. And what I'm suggesting is that the Lamb took that record copy, and now what we're seeing as he stands on the earth is then God's, verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Ark of his covenant. The Torah. So what we're doing is you have the king showing up, putting his feet on the earth, taking possession, and up above you have, hey guys, there's the deed. He is authorized. In other words, he is not simply coming in power. God has got all the power he needs. If God wants to, God has got the power to do it. That's not what's happening here. Yes, of course, he has all this power, but he also has authority. In other words, he is not simply coming as a brute and a bully that's bigger than anybody else. He could do that, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is he's saying, okay, this is the word. This is what gives me the authority. This is the deed to the place. See where it has my name right there? I'm the deed holder. I'm here. And, oh, by the way, I am very powerful. 
and you're not going to be able to kill me like you were able to kill my prophets, you know, all that kind of stuff. Remember the parable where the ruler leases out the vineyard and comes time for the harvest, he sends to get some of the grapes and they keep beating and, and killing his messengers. And what does it say? At the end, the king himself will come and he will put things to right. That's what's happening here. And he is doing it by right and by deed, not simply by power. Oh, yes, he has the power. But it's, it's power backed by authority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But see, what Satan has is simply power. And Satan's a usurper. And Satan exercises authority by deception, power, and all that kind of stuff. But he's not legitimate. Yeshua, the Messiah, the King, is legitimate. He has got the deed. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you. <laughs>